This is Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations. I know that uh, the early voting was not what people were hoping for. I suspect that part of the reason for that is that folks are concerned about whether their candidate can win. Uh, but we have to take the example of Barack Obama, who a lot of people didn't think could win, and he wound up to be our first Black president. As a good example of don't make assumptions about who is going to win or not. Dr. Sean Wilson is with us uh, for our discussion uh, on this today. And um, I'm sure he agrees with me that it's important for everybody to vote and vote for the people they think can really do the job. And um, Dr. Wilson, uh, what made you get into this? I mean, right now the political universe is not a pretty picture. There's um, too much partisan warfare and too little collaboration and cooperation and looking for the solutions to issues that we're dealing with. And um, so I know that in that context, you felt somehow that you could break through. Yeah, so Gene, thank you for the opportunity to visit. First, let me just tell you, your opening remarks were very salient and I will suggest to you that there's numbers out there that are somewhat confusing because when you look at the early vote turnout that we see, um, the African-American turnout had a higher percentage this year than it did in the previous governor's election. Oh. If you look at the percentage. And so there's been a universal decrease in voters, both for Republicans and Democrats. And so there's a higher percentage of African-American voters that voted in the primary so far in early voting. And so that does give me encouragement. But to your specific question about why did I jump in this race? You know, I've got 25 years of service working for the people of Louisiana, always putting them first in Republican administrations and Democratic administrations, making a difference for everyday people all across the state of Louisiana. And when I retired on March 5th, I realized that I was not interested in working for any of the candidates. Most of them had asked me to stay on in some capacity. But, you know, I thought if I was really going to be true to the work that I had done over those 25 years, it was incumbent upon me to work to lead it in a way that could guarantee uh, we continue down the path of success that we've had. And so the best way for me to continue my ministry of public service was to step out on faith and offer my service as governor, because that was the only next logical step, given the places I've been and the things I've done and the commitment I have to the people of this great state. I won't ask you to go through your whole biography. People can do that online. Um, but but please describe your last position and um, how that experience um puts you in a place to, uh, again, do what I, I think is the most critical thing, and that is uh, work with others to find the solutions. And in particular in Louisiana, yeah. we have to be thinking about economic development and how are we going to get past a period when one of our key industries is declining, fossil fuel industries. And, um, and it's great that we're going into renewables, but that's not enough. We've got to do more than that. So, um, what did you learn yeah. uh, as as the director of transportation? Yeah. Your correct title, I probably don't have it right. Yeah, well, I was the secretary of the Department of Transportation. But Gene, it started way earlier than that as a product of the public school system. It started with an undergraduate degree in urban and regional planning from USL in Lafayette. And then I have a master's of public administration and a PhD in public policy. With that 25 years experience, as well as that academic training, 
it prepared me to serve as secretary for the Department of Transportation and Development for over seven and a half years. And believe it or not, it was an amazing experience in terms of the things that we were able to achieve. Because economic development, before you got into tax credits and exemptions and rebates and all of these nuanced programs, economic development was really ports, rail, aviation, maritime, interstate, moving people to and from places of opportunity, seeking opportunity and connecting them to goods. Everything you own, buy, sell, or trade, the things that move our economy have to interface with our transportation system. And as secretary, we've developed those and we've seen the impact on what it does for our economy. At this pivotal point of evolution in our economy, we need to be embracing the clean energy movement and having all of the above energy approach. When you look at renewables, wind, solar, hydrogen, all of these innovations and creativity things are huge in terms of creating wealth in our society, but they're also gonna be helpful in transitioning folks from what we have been doing for a hundred years in the oil and gas industry, because you're gonna need welders. You're gonna need folks to be able to work offshore for windmills. You're gonna need to have all of those skill sets that currently sustain the oil and gas industry to sustain the renewable side. But here's the other benefit to it, Gene. From a renewable perspective, go out and look at the solar plant that's gonna be developed, uh, the panel manufacturing that's gonna be developed in Acadiana, a $1.2 billion investment. Those are jobs for people. Those are real good paying jobs that will only grow in the future because we know we're at the precipice of this renewable movement. And as it grows and grabs a larger share of the market, there's gonna be greater demand for more windmills, more solar panels, and the innovation of what's gonna be applied from those lessons are gonna only multiply. So we should be preparing our workforce today to be able to fulfill the jobs of tomorrow and not just rest on the laurels of what we've done. And that's not to say that the oil and gas industry is disappearing. The clothes on my back as a kid, the food on my table was a result of my father working in the oil and gas industry. And so it has done wonders for our economy. But we also have to be thoughtful and smart, not just in terms of where we're going to grow, but are we going to be better stewards of the earth that we have to be able to be more renewable and more resilient in our development of energy? Uh, but to share with you, um, my own uh, concern is that I think that we have a lot of other uh, key assets in the state that are not being developed uh, sufficiently. And I count all of the creative industries, the visual performing media, culinary, design, literary, um, as um, uh, areas of growth opportunity that um, we haven't attended to. And I'll be honest with you, I'm very concerned about how the um, federal dollars that are coming in for infrastructure and for uh, relief from uh, the problems that we've had in the past couple of years are being spent. I, I really don't understand it. And um, I, I, I keep not hearing that word creative industry in association well, with that. I'll tell you, look, I don't disagree with you. You hear people talk about STEM. You hear me talk about STEAM uh, because you have to include art in various forms. And so that is a way to be very creative, uh, if you will, pun intended, to use art in a very broad sense to attract that creative side. But when you look at the cultural history of who we are in the state with music, dance, you name it, the historical architectural elements here, the way we've evolved with different cultures all culminating into what you see today in this global city of New Orleans. We have to make that 
you're absolutely correct that we have to do that. Things like the investment in broadband all across this state, providing resources to communities that are underserved, think what that's going to do for that small business person, for that candle maker, for that person who is selling uh, Louisiana pralines and pecans that are going to create some oil or some other beauty product. Who knows what they're going to create? But they now have the global market to thank for opportunities to grow because of this broadband investment. Think about what you're going to see in terms of new pipes, in terms of replacing the lead pipes that are out there. What is that going to do from a resilient standpoint for us to be able to invest to protect some of the cultural sites that we have in our state and the cultural lifestyles that we have in our state? So I do see some coexistence there. Um, I do think there's some challenges in our state with the way we spend our dollars from a constitutional perspective that limits us in terms of how we invest to grow those things. That's typically going to be a local government issue because we have not fully invested in education. We have not fully invested in infrastructure. We have not fully invested in law enforcement. And so we have very limited resources at the state level, but we have to cultivate and grow that. I remember one of the most exciting things as a kid growing up in New Orleans was the cultural arts program. We'd go over to the Sanger Theater and see plays and have drama and have musicals. All of those things gave us an appreciation of art and it made it easy for those of us and my contemporaries who wanted to pursue careers in that because they saw themselves on that stage or they saw themselves hanging on that wall in that museum. And so clearly I think that creative class has to be cultivated and invested in. Um, and as a candidate for governor, being from New Orleans, uh, the bastion of a lot of that creativity, I will absolutely be supportive of those things. Address for me now the issue of voters voting and um, why you feel that there has been, um, if not a diminution specifically in Black vote, but um, some uh, fall off. What would you say to voters to encourage them to come out and vote? Well, look, I say to voters, if you choose not to vote, your vote is actually counting and it's counting against you. And so I'd much rather you come and vote and vote for what you think is right. Do not be discouraged by the bickering and the fighting and the silliness that you see on television. It's time for us to look at really good substantive issues. Look at the fact that we had a $2 billion deficit and we've turned it into a $2 billion surplus. Now is not the time to reverse ourselves and go back to those same gentle economic approaches that we know the other team is going to propose. They've already told us that. They've already told us that they are not interested in sustaining the criminal justice reforms that we have. And so for me, I tell voters, don't be deceived. Do not give up because there's a lot of hardworking people that care about the issues that you care about. And we need to elect people so that we can better reform our system and have leadership that we can trust, leadership that we can depend on to be articulate, to be informative, um, and to be practical. Um, that's important, I think, for any governmental entity at any level is for individuals to get value out of what the government is providing. And if we're not providing value, then we're failing you. And so it's important that you vote to be a part of this discussion and be a part of this process. Um, and listen, the election is October 14th. Whether you vote for me or not, I need you to go vote because people died for their right to vote. People sacrificed for the right to vote. And there's a lot of folks out there today that are suggesting that our voting processes aren't really effective and that they're unethical and that they're wrong and broken. The reality is these are all just threats. There's a effort to suppress voting in Louisiana and around the country. There's an effort to not just uh, suppress it, but to perhaps restrict your rights to vote. We should be making it easier for people to vote as opposed to making it more difficult. 
I hope that um, people will take to heart those words. I think they're they are really right on the money and and very critical. Glad to hear it, and um, thank you so much for urging people to vote. I think that's the primary message I was trying to get across today. Is that yes. We make no assumptions about who's going to win or lose. Just get out there and vote. Look, money, the news, the media, let no one determine that. The way we set up elections is for the voters themselves to make that determination. And we've got over 2 million people registered in the state of Louisiana. And if everybody voted, we'd have a much better result. Please take it seriously. Go out to vote. Polls are open uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning. They will close at 8 o'clock at night. You can visit GoVote.com to make sure that you know exactly where your polling location is. Please bring your ID, do the homework and the research on the front end in terms of the constitutional issues, as well as all of the candidates. I'm just one of the 16. I'm the last one on that list. Um, my number is 16. But listen, there are other candidates that you should consider. I think at the end of the day, having you go vote is the most important thing. Thank you so, so much for your time. And uh, thank you. Good luck to All you. Right. Very, very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. So I'm with one of the noted and persistent, extremely persistent, as you learn in this conversation, the creatives in town, Tommy Myrick who is a performer, a director, a producer, an administrator. She's, she's an organizer. She's, she's a culture bearer. She's uh, everything. And that's the way so many people in New Orleans are. I mean, that, kudos to you, but we have a lot of people like that who are under-recognized. Um, and the story that you are about to tell us about uh, in, in, that is uh, part of the performance that is coming up um, is another sort of under-recognized story. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing it because I know a little bit about it, but even just from the little performance that I saw the other night, a little snippet, I realized I don't know enough. So we're going to talk about your show. So we're starting with the play first. Yeah. Okay. Um, Le Code Noir. Um... Um, is a story that about an enslaved African girl who was brought here um, uh, during the Haitian Revolution. Uh, she was 17 years old uh, in 1794. And what we do is we actually trace her saga, her journey uh, for the next 27 years. Um, that is the the journey of she being here on the auction block in New Orleans and how she goes through these years and how the politics of the day affected uh, her life. The code of the land at that time was one that was written by King Louis XIV about the, uh, it was a code of ethics that told how to treat the enslaved and, and how to treat free people of color, as well as how the masters are to govern and rule these people. It's also a law of the land that called for the expulsion of the Jewish population in any Catholic territory owned by France. That was so, a, a total surprise to me. I had never heard that before. And, and um, believe it or not, that is the first code 
of the 48 codes. That is the very first one. Wow. I'm not surprising given the fact that 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 New Orleans or I should say Louisiana uh Catholicism was very very strong and um so one of the other codes was that every enslaved person had to be baptized as Catholic. And so uh this is governed uh, the state of Louisiana all the way really up until the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 even though this code was written in 1685. Wow. Yeah. And I had no idea it was that early. For some reason, I associated it with a later period in history that um, uh, has had been described in some other publications I've read. You know, I think people have a tendency to, to, to sort of, because it is French, and and it is code noir, which means black code, that they associate the black code with code noir. And they are really two different things. The black code really came to existence after the Louisiana Purchase. A code noir is something that governed uh, how you treat slaves and things of that nature, the enslaved, I should say, but the Black Code became mm, more of a, a rule, an unspoken law of what you could and could not do versus the Catholicism and how you treat uh, your enslaves and things like that that was under Code Noir. So the French translation of Code Noir is Black Code. But the Black Code, just like um, Plessy versus Ferguson of, of 1896, uh, which ushered in Jim Crow, um, followed the Black Code. So there were three, and then of course you go into the Civil Rights Movement. So there are four really um, codes, laws, rules, legalities that govern how Black people should be treated in this country. Wow, that is another thing I really didn't know. Before we go any further, because it's fascinating, and I know I'm going to just have a lot of questions, but let's uh, talk about the performances, the days, times, and locations. I just want to get that in in the beginning, and then we'll come back to it. Okay. Yeah. Well, the performance is of, of La Côte Noire in Congo Square, uh, which is in the heart of... Uh, New Orleans, but also located within Louis Armstrong Park. Um, it is this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, that's October 13th, 14th, and 15th at 5 p.m. And we started at 5 p.m. because the city says we have to, it is a public park, it has to be closed at a certain time. And in as much as we want to have all of the ambiance and the glamour of, of stage lighting and things of that nature, uh, we had to start it at five to make sure that that we follow the rules and regulations set forth by the city of New Orleans. Right. Okay. And it is free to the public as well. I mean, that's just amazing that you were able to um, organize that. Obviously, that means you did a lot of work raising money to do this so that you could pay people for their performances and yet um, be able to present this to the public free. That's that's just remarkable. And, it, uh, it, 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 it has been 27 years. We didn't exactly 
want to present it to the public for free, but we definitely wanted it in Congo Square because the story begins in Congo Square and the history of Congo Square and the importance of Congo Square. Right. But because it is a public park, we could not charge. So my board of directors and myself uh, decided rather than move it 50 feet to our right so that it is in Louis Armstrong Park where you can charge because it's not city-owned property, uh, we decided that we definitely had to do this first review in Congo Square. So uh, there was no other option other than to, we accept donations and we will not charge you. Let's go back to your young woman. And what is her name? Uh, who? Your, the, the, uh, the enslaved woman. The lead, the lead character's name is Santee. Uh, S-A-N-T-E-E. -E. Okay. And she was actually born in Africa, um, from Africa and taken to Saint-Domingue, which is now known as Haiti. And during the Haitian Revolution of, of uh, that began in 1794, she was one of the enslaved Africans who was sold by her master. Um, he himself was fleeing the Haitian Revolution. And that's how she ended up here on the auction block of New Orleans. Uh, so this is a true story also. I mean, that's something that didn't completely uh, penetrate my uh, aware, my attention span. Um, so uh, is, this is not a, I mean, it could very easily be a story told many times and, and be fictional, but in fact, it is, this. Some, this is a true story. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a true story of many of the enslaved, especially those of us who came or came, were brought here from Africa via the Caribbean islands to New Orleans. Um, some came directly from uh, the Senegambian coast, straight from there to uh, Louisiana. And then there were stops along the way for many uh, South America, all the way up through uh, Haiti, Cuba, and and then uh, New Orleans, the Port of Orleans. Do you, What's do you interesting? Know why, do you know why there was such a a, a well worn path, so to speak, um, to New Orleans? Why New Orleans? Why New Orleans? That's that's interesting, and there is a there is a, a reason for that, and the reason for that is because when the in slave importation act was passed that said that you could no longer bring in Africans uh, from other nations to America, which did not abolish slavery, but it did say that you can no longer import Africans or people, uh, slaves. You could no longer import them into America. So the nearest port of of importation where you can sneak them in was going the other direction. And that is going directly through, uh, up through uh, South America, up through the Caribbean islands to the port of New Orleans. This is what made New Orleans the largest slave port in the nation. Because also, was that also because it, at, at the at, for a certain period of time, it was not America. It was it was part of France. It was part of France. 
And that is that is true. That is very, very true. And 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 so when you look through history, you will see that the majority of the enslaved Africans who were brought here prior to the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 were brought up through the Carolinas and and, and Virginia and and up that way. And then you will see that after the purchase of Louisiana in 1803, the importation of uh of, of enslaved Africans uh, began to grow here in Louisiana. And this is what made Louisiana the largest slave port in America. It fueled okay. the e economy. Right. Yes. So, so she comes into the port of New Orleans, Sante, and uh, Santi, I think Santee. you and 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 so tell me about her her uh, the what what happens after she gets here well not giving most of the story away let's just say that she is purchased by a a, a white a wealthy white uh, frenchman who is in need of a wet nurse and and that is because his wife uh who was uh, white as well, uh, died shortly after giving birth to his only child, his son, uh, when the baby was three months old. So that being said, he is at this um, auction looking for a wet nurse for his for his son. And then he sees Santee, who is 17 years old, who, who herself has a four-month-old baby that she is nursing uh, mm -hmm. and this is how the story evolves i, I have to say that i uh mark mark r sumner who is now deceased and mentored me uh mark r sumner and myself we wrote this play together um the concept was basically mine uh and mark helped me with the history and also the the colonialism that was used by anglo-saxons at that time um, but we decided that the story should begin in 1794 because that is when the Haitian Revolution began. And I believe it is, for my belief, is that the Haitian Revolution, had that not happened, America would not be what it is today. I believe that it is primarily because of the Haitian Revolution. Because that so many people left Haiti to come here. It was a huge it, number. I think it, the population of New Orleans, what it what have I heard, doubled or or more even even than more than doubled. And even though the state, which 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 was uh owned by France, which was from the mouth of the Mississippi all the way up past into the borders of Canada, all the way west all the way up to California, over to California, what is now 18 states in America used to be what Louisiana was. All French-owned territory, however, but governed by Spain. And, and that was basically because of the fact that the Spanish people, Mexico, it wasn't Mexico at that time, but um, was here and it was governed by Spain. Louisiana had the land grant. But when the Haitian Revolution happened and all these Frenchmen, these native uh, Frenchmen were fleeing the revolution, they went to the nearest French-owned territory, which was Louisiana, which then 
began to populate Louisiana, repopulate Louisiana as, as French dominated. And yeah. also keep in mind, a lot of those Frenchmen, some of them went back to France, but keep in mind that the French Revolution was just a few years ahead of this one. You know, when you're talking about Marie Antoinette and all of that, that French Revolution is not too far, not too far in the past. Right. So those Frenchmen who were fleeing um, Saint-Domingue uh, came to Louisiana. With them, they brought their concubine as well as their wealth and their slaves or their chattel, I should say. Yeah. You know, so um, and so what we do with the story, because we begin with Santee in, in 1794, we now have to go through um, uh, French to Spain, uh, Spain back to French, France back to then to the Louisiana Purchase. Then you have to go from the Louisiana Pur Purchase of 1803 all the way to um uh, the revolt, the late, largest slave revolt in the history of the Americas, the revolt of 1811. Then you have to go through um, the War of 1812, uh, the Battle of New Orleans, 1815. But at the same time that you're dealing with these types of struggles between France and Spain and 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 the British. At the same time, you're dealing with that. You're dealing with institutions that are in place, and people that actually lived during that period of time. You have W. C. C. Claiborne. You have Marie Laveau, Henrietta Delille. You have uh, Andrew Jackson. You have Jean Lafitte, uh, which was who was very important with the uh, Battle of New Orleans as well as the War of 1812. And yeah. so all of this is within this two hour and 10 minute story by tracing the life of this young girl. You also have to deal with not just the mixing of cultures in terms of the Native Americans and the Spanish and, and the French and the German coasts and, and the Africans. You also have to deal with institutions like Plasage <laughs> right. yeah. and the quadroom ball and those acceptable uh, institutions that were in place that dictated your status here in Louisiana. Wow, right. So, you know, um, yeah, the, the, the history of our region is so complex, rich, uh damning damning on the one hand and the outcome however is this incredible melange cultural melange unique that, only to louisiana right that 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 we benefit from today but still do not truly acknowledge Embrace. the importance of and support the way we should. And of course, you know that my organization, the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, this is our focus. And we've been working for too long on a, on a strategic plan to change the policies of how we deal with our culture. But um, it's been so disheartening 
to constantly think about how complicated and 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 in many 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 ways and for many many people the evolution of that culture was tragic yet with this incredible outcome but it's still in a way tragic in the sense that uh, we are not rewarding the people who are as we say the culture bearers as well as the innovators you know a lot of people focus on the culture bearing which I agree with and understand, but we also continue to this day to be an innovative culture. We are always creating new art forms, new music, new visual, architectural, um, film, uh, music, of course, and, and but culinary, everything. We're a very, very innovative place. And I attribute that at least in part to the to the innovativeness that was required to survive back in the beginning of the development of our culture. Is that fair? I think that is very, very fair. I think it's very true. I, I you know, it's sort of like a double-edged sword. Our our history and our history is <laughs> is who we are and it's the one thing that makes us one of the most traveled visited uh, place in America in terms of international tourists and 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 it is because of our art and our culture that grew out of this, amalgamated combined richness of who we are as a people. I tell people all the time, you know, you talk about New Orleans and you talk about Louisiana and you talk about six degrees of separation in this, in, here it's only two degrees, if that many. You can go two people deep before you recognize and realize someone that you are related to in some form or fashion, regardless of their skin color and their hair texture. Um, two degrees is all it is. And that history that we are so proud of is also the history that we fear because we're afraid to go too deep into that sixth or, or fourth degree to find out who we really are. This is why this story is so important. Uh, it's also important because people come to Louisiana, particularly New Orleans. And if they want to see the, go on the swamp tour, they go on the swamp tour. If they want to see St. Louis, okay, that's where they go. They want to go to Bourbon Street after you've done it the first night and you got to hang over the next night. You don't want to go there anymore. But there is nothing that is family oriented. Nothing that, that, I mean, you can go to a museum, you can do a walking tour, but is there something that teaches us the entire history in one sitting that is family oriented? And, and that is the reason why I wanted to do this, this production. I had the opportunity to become uh, the first African-American and the first woman to direct a historical outdoor drama in this country in 1994 when I directed Mark R. Sumner's 
You may know that name because he's co-writer of me, of uh, of Le Code Noir. Um, um, I directed his play, A Pathway to Freedom, which was the first historical outdoor drama in this country to deal with slavery. When I came back to Louisiana, I said, well, wait a minute. We don't have a historical outdoor drama here. Why not? You know, why not Louisiana, which to me is probably the most important state in America to make America what it is today. And so that's when I called Mark and I said, Mark, can you help me write this piece? He says, okay, you got the story. I'll do the colonialism and the history and you do the rest. The other thing, uh, Gene, that I think is important about historical outdoor dramas, just like Illinois has Lincoln, Unto These Hills, which is in North Carolina, Trail of Tears, you know, um, the one thing that is important is that if you use the name or and likeness of anybody who really lived during that period of time, the events surrounding that person has got to be accurate. And that's what took Mark and I so long to write this play. And that was checking and rechecking and double checking and triple checking uh, history. Yeah, and, and um, you know, as I said, when I had a certain impression of Code Noir from a more superficial uh, historical reading. When I first came here, I did a lot of reading of, of um, both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, to understand better what was clearly a pretty complicated um, human um, uh, drama, <laughs> ongoing drama. And, uh, and, and oddly, uh, I came here in 1972, and it took me a very long time to truly understand how recently the city had been segregated. <sighs> And how when I get here, it, it's literally just at the dawning of a non-segregated city. Um, and, and you had these powerful um, political, Black political, not just Black, but, but political organizations, including Black organizations, that were shaping the future. And I took them for granted. I said, oh, wow, this is great. Look at all these great organizations. And and, and really didn't understand how recently they weren't there. Now, I worked with a woman named Aretha Castle Haley, which was one of the absolutely most incredible accidents of fate that my visit here um, was begun, literally, at lunch in Dookie Chase with Aretha, because I came here working for McGovern and I met with a group mm. of, of guys Mm -hmm. I don't remember any woman there. There might have been Kathy Vick is the only one I could think of that might have been there. Guys who were uh, giving me uh, an orientation about what I was to do here because I was the state coordinator for McGovern. And they said, hire Aretha for the New Orleans. And of course, I, I, I met her and wound up doing that. And she um, affected the rest of my life in New Orleans in many, many ways. But uh, it, it's so hard to understand the layers and I did not understand the degree of white racism in the city. Really, it continues, of course, that we're learning so much more about white racism than we understood because we kind of buried it. 
in many ways than our conscience, at least white people did. And um, so there, for you to, to, to delve into this story and, and bring it up from back then to now, is really what you did in a way, even though your history, I don't know, I, I haven't seen the play yet, so I don't know when it, when it fin ends, but it doesn't end basically. So what, what, you, what you describe in your play continues to be under undercurrents of, of how we live today, still in this region. But I, I wanna know what drove you initially, aside from all the things we've, we've just been saying, to do this play and to stay with it for so long and overcome all the, what I'm sure were the obstacles to getting it done, because I mean, I know about obstacles. So um, tell me what drove you. Um, you know, um, I was raised by my great aunt who was uh, uh, my grandmother's sister, but she had me since I was a year and a half. So that was my mom. And she was a teacher, um, um, a historian, a professor, and, and principal as well, uh, and led the teacher's program at Dillard University. So I come by my interests, uh, honestly. Um, but I think one of the things that my aunt told me that the most um the most powerful way to to disrespect to a person is to ignore them and when i look at everything that is happening in this country and i look at everything that i have ever learned um was the absence and i use this line in the play the absence the absence of of those whose land was stolen from them and those who were stolen from their land uh these two groups of people are omitted from his storybook um and so therefore it became my mission to say, okay, we, 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 we have to tell the story. And Mark also taught me that, that, that you, you can't, two things you can't change in life, death and history. And you have to write it as it happened. Um, the driving force behind that gene is the fact that I was raised doing segregation. Um, and I remember getting these secondhand books from, from these white schools, um, all scratched up and used up and things of that nature. By the time we got them in the first and second and third grade, I also remember something else. I remember not seeing me there, but most importantly, I think was the fact that despite the fact that our teachers were black and we were reading these, these white books, our teachers never 
ever let us go without knowing about who we were, about George Washington Carver, about Nat Turner, about Denmark, D.C. They let us know about Harriet Tubman and, and uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. They taught us that out of their knowledge, not in the history books because they weren't there. So it became my mission to make sure that our story is told. And as Mark said, we have to document everything that happens to us. And we have to do it in a forum that people can see it, enjoy it, but learn from it. And that's why I be, it became so, I became so driven with the story. So <laughs> the story continues, <laughs> right? Yes. So you live it. You're in that story mm -hmm. now. Um, how are you feeling about today's story? I'm so happy that I am not the writer of it. And, and I'm happy um, to pass that baton to someone else. Um, today's story is one for the history books if indeed we live long enough that history can be written about these times if we don't annihilate each other before the story can be told um, I think that's all I can say about that um yeah. Well, um, uh, let, let, let me delve just a little bit further, because one of the, the things I find so frustrating about today's story is that uh, it's being told as so many other stories around the country that we know about that are so egregiously wrong. Um, it, it's, it's being told in a way that focuses on the symptoms of some of the really deep wrongs that we are dealing with still about education, right? So our, our education in New Orleans is still not preparing people for today's economy. And so too many people coming out of our schools do not see their career path. And if you don't see your career path, if you don't see opportunity for yourself. You become destructive. Right. Destructive and disruptive. And you wind up trying to create a total alternative uh, story and world for yourself that is extremely dangerous and puts you into that category called crime, which is a word I don't use because that's not what it's about. That's a symptom of what I just said, the lack of the education and exactly what you were saying just a minute ago about not telling, about ignoring, about not really um, facing the the real the true realities um the the you know 
Voices <laughs> has a. I just want to finish I'm one sorry. sentence. Let's say that what's going on in the in the country today, and and so in so many parts of the globe, is um, a a process of denying truth, denying science, denying history, denying the future, and creating these these fables. And that's not the first time humans have done this. We're, we we practice this, and um, it's it's so dismaying and and horrifying that at a time when you would have thought that public education in America was designed to make sure that we achieve the mission of this country, which is equal opportunity, and equal opportunity gets lost totally if people don't have a fair and equal education. So I, I can understand why you want to pass the baton because this is brutal. This is this is in some ways to me as brutal as the physical brutality of slavery that we are not preparing our youth to participate in a very stark economic revolution. I'm sorry, I just had to say that. That's, I say it a lot. So that's profound. I, I that is it. profound. You know, Malcolm X once said, Malcolm X once said, you can't put biscuits in an in an oven and expect a chicken. And he said that as it related, as it relates to uh America. You can't. You can't enslave people and not address it and not make amends to that or and ignore the, the reality of it from its onset. Everything that we see that has happened and is happening is a result of an institution that had the opportunity to right a wrong at the time that it wrote the Constitution. And at the very time that the Constitution was written is the time to right a wrong. But to keep that in place from 1776, is to perpetuate a wrong for over 100, 200 years. America had the opportunity in 1776 to correct it, to correct what had been going wrong at that point in time, since the first enslaved African was brought here in 1717, I mean in 1695, here to Louisiana shores. 1619, I'm sorry, 1619 to the Louisiana shores, but it did not. Now, that being said, one thing we can't change is history, but we can certainly guide and the future. And I think that, that knowledge, once you embrace the knowledge of what really happened, and view it as something that happened, then you can you can right that wrong. You can't undo the past, but you certainly can move forward in a more positive manner.
with all due respect to my Caucasian brothers and sisters here in America, I often say that they need to be happy and feel grateful that Black people in America are not a violent, revengeful people, and the Native Americans as well. Um, so I'm hoping that this story of Lakotenoa, I'm hoping that we understand the history of Louisiana, but that we don't even we we don't just see the mixing of cultures, but we see the mixing of a bloodline, and that that bloodline connects us all. Period. Whether you have straight hair or curly hair, whether you're brown skin or or fair skin or high yellow, as they say, or or white or pink or brown or yellow. There's only one thread, one thread. You know, Mark, Mark and I wrote this together and Mark was quite a bit older than I. Mark was 93 years old when he died five years ago. But Mark had a line in the play because we would always cut correcting each other even, you know, in doing this. And so he has a line in the play that says, um, he says, you know something, Walter? This household is made up of a strange fabric. And that was supposed to be the end of that scene. Instead, it was not the end. Mark's line is, this household is made of a strange fabric. And Walter says, like my mama's quilt. And then Renard says, Mark says, what? And Walter says, forget it. On that note, Yes, Tommy, um, you have become my whole show, which yeah. I don't always do very rarely about, I don't know, one out of a hundred shows that I do one person. Uh, <laughs> you have done it. And um, I uh, want you to remind everybody days, times and place for your your dramatic presentation of our history here. So. <laughs> Um, close this Friday, Friday, October 13th, 14th, and 15th in Congo Square, starting at 5 p.m., free of charge. Bring your own chairs and your own snacks. And enjoy and learn and appreciate something that is a first in Louisiana, but we hope will be an ongoing seasonal annual uh, showing of Le Code Noir. And hopefully, as we begin to better understand 
the relationship between our culture and our economy, you will get greater support and not have to take 27 years on your next project. Thank you, Tommy Murray, for your life and your work and uh, for this production. And um, I, I look forward to seeing it. I hope that already, I, I, you are recording it. You are documenting it somewhere. We are documenting it. And okay. I do hope that you can come. And if you do, let me know what time and date. I'll make sure you get a special seat. Oh, thank you so much. All right. All right. Thank you, Jane. I don't need a special seat, though. But Bye-bye. Uh, yeah. Bye. Thank you. Mm-hmm for everything. So this Saturday, I hope that I'll see you at the polls. Even though we have quite a few dismal candidates, we have some really good ones too. So do your best and vote. This is Gene Nathan for Crosstown Conversations. See you after the election.